0: Father, we, we think of uh, four weeks before that time of Christmas, that long anticipated time when uh, Christ would come. And even as the, the theme of the, the candles here, they're celebrated worldwide, and we can join in with so many Christians across this globe thinking and celebrating of the, the coming of Christ. God would pray that you would put in our hearts a hope. Uh, as we have been going through Romans, Lord, I've been seeing sin, God, and I've been trying to paint it black, as black can be, because apart from the black, we can't see the white. We need to be lost before we're found. God, we need to realize that we are are dead in our sins, God, before we will ever be saved. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would, God, distill in us a hope of the coming Messiah. God, hope of sins forgiven in Jesus God hope of eternal righteousness and eternal joy in your presence. And so, Father, we pray that you would, God, this Christmas season, God, delight to um, visit us and be with us and comfort us and encourage us. Pray for my message now, God. I just know each week standing up here, it's it's by weakness that I come. And, Father, the power is in your word. It's not in uh, your servant and it's not in a man. Um, Father, would pray that you would help me to open your word, help it to sink deep in our hearts, that we would heed the warnings of the passage today. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned in my prayer, we are in Romans. It's where we've been working. um, Step by step through this chapter, paragraph by paragraph has been about our case, our our pace, rather. And uh, we're in this first part. The sin part over Romans and eager to preach the gospel, the sin comes and salvation comes and then the rest of it's just working itself out, whether that's in sanctification or security or or sovereignty or service. It's all how it, it works itself out. Well, I want you to take not your Bibles, but I want you to take your hymnals and open them to hymn number 451. It just speaks about a, a family. It's, a, it's really a prayer for a, a Christian home. And I just say that it's a it's a great blessing to grow up in a Christian home. When mom and dad love each other, when dad models servant leadership, and mom is is happy, supporting, and helping, where the fear of the Lord is taught, where where peace reigns in the home, where scriptures are memorized, the Bible's read, where prayers are prayed, where the gospel's believed, where the Lord is sought in good times and in bad, when children are loved and accepted and appropriately disciplined, where Christian friends dominate the the social circles, where activities and relationships take prominence around people and not things, where language is edifying and building up rather than tearing down, where brothers and sisters are best friends and where laughter is is constant. And I just say it is hard to overestimate the blessings of growing up in a Christian family. That's why the hymn writer wrote this hymn. I just want to read through it. I just want you to follow along. Oh, give us homes built firm upon the Savior, where Christ is head and counselor and guide, where every child is taught His love and favor and gives His heart to Christ the crucified. How sweet to know that though His footsteps waver, His faithful Lord is walking by His side. Here's the home that the hymn writer was praying for. Just just a home where, where Christ is set up and where the gospel is believed Oh, give us homes, talking about marriage, with godly fathers, mothers, who always place their hope and trust in Him, whose tender patience turmoil never bothers, whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim, a home where each finds joy in serving others, and love still shines, though days be dark and grim. Just through the the good times and the bad times, the difficult times, a home that just seeks the Lord where prayer is always the priority. Third stanza. Oh, give us homes where Christ is Lord and Master, the Bible read, the precious hymns still sung, where prayer comes first in peace or in disaster, and praise is natural speech to every tongue, where mountains move before a faith that's vaster than the mountains. And Christ sufficient is for old and young. Praise is natural speak for every tongue because the gospel in God so permeates that home. O Lord, our God, our homes are Thine forever. Just giving them to God. We, We trust to Thee their problems, toils, and care. Their bonds of love no enemy can sever. If Thou art always Lord and Master there, be Thou the center of our least endeavor. Be Thou our guest, our hearts and homes to share. There's just a a desire for Christian homes. and I I know that's my desire for all the homes here at Rock Valley Bible Church. I know that those of you who have grown up in these sorts of homes are eternally grateful. And uh, if you have experienced such a home, you are thankful to God. I know you are. And uh, perhaps this Thanksgiving, this past Thursday, you expressed that that thanks. Um, and if you didn't grow up in such a home, you know what I'm talking about. And you know what a blessing it is to have such a, a gospel-filled home. And you can only pray that, that others can experience what you never really experienced. But I, I just say you ought to be thankful to God. Children, here this morning, you ought to be thankful to God for the homes that you're being raised in. I'm doing all I can to urge your fathers to lead in family worship, to have family prayers together, to have the Bible read together in the home, to know of unconditional love and support and yet being disciplined appropriately, to sing together, to have fun together, to joy together, and through the troubles, trust in the Lord. Perhaps troubles come and you have family meetings just talking about the difficulties that come. That's that's my heart for all of you. Now, my message this morning is speaking to the unique dangers of those who who come in such a, a, a blessed home. Because those who are reared in Christians' home Christian homes face unique dangers that others who are born into pagan homes don't. Those reared in Christian homes default to a moral life. And therefore it's not quite um, so evident that one needs God and one needs Christ because of the blessing of a, of a God-saturated life. And those reared in Christians home come to know much about God which might easily mask a true knowledge of God. Because you might talk a lot about Him, but you might not know Him. And that, children, is your danger. A unique danger of those who are reared in children's home is to know how to talk like a Christian when in fact their hearts are rebellious against the Lord and they're just talking that way to please others. Those reared in Christian homes know how to act like a Christian because they've seen their parents doing it and they know how to do it. They know the gig. They have disciplines built into their life, which can subtly mask the fact that it's only their environment. That is keeping them there. That's why so many kids go off to college, and when the the chains are loosed, they go astray. It's because their hearts have always been rebellious. There's been some constraint. That's a unique danger. Uh, A a child doesn't raise in a Christian home, just goes off to college and lives like he's always lived. But when a Christian home, you really need to check your heart. And you may look righteous on the outside, but you may be lost and far from God. And Jesus demonstrated that danger when he told the parable of the the Pharisee and the the tax collector. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, grown up in a righteous religious home, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. And Jesus said that this man who was beating his breast went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a parable about pride and you can be proud of your home and your religious works. And the goodness that you have worked up in your life. The difference between these two men of the story that Jesus told couldn't have been greater. There's, there was righteousness on one side and there was unrighteousness on the other. The one was schooled in the law. He was a Pharisee, if you will. The other was not, presumably. The one walked in obedience and the other not. That's why he was a betrayer of the nation. The one was confident before God. God, I thank you. And the other was not, as he didn't even lift up his eyes. The one knew how to pray, and I suspect that the other one didn't, just kind of grunting. God, help me, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. But I want you to think about the prayer of this Pharisee, because there are very, very many commendable things about this prayer. He was thankful. God, I thank you that I was not made, I was not like other men. He's thankful for God's blessing in his life. I'm thankful that I'm not like other men. I could have been out there, but I'm not. I'm here, and God, I thank you. Uh, He was thankful to God for his righteous upbringing. Thankful to God for his hand of protection upon his life. He wasn't drawn away into a wicked life. He wasn't drawn away into a life of extortion or unrighteousness or adultery like the life of this tax collector. God protected him from these things. A fighter verse we went over in prayer meeting this morning. It's not a verse I've memorized. Uh, It's going to be a new one for me this week. Psalm 141 verses 3 and 4. Psalm 141 verse 3 says, guard my mouth. And then the second half says, keep watch over my lips. In other words, that I might not speak wrong things. And I made the comment, just even in light, just know I'm going to be sharing this this morning about, think about that, that that the righteous man prays to God for help to keep his mouth from speaking bad and wicked and evil things. The righteous man prays to God for his sanctification and knows that unless God guards his mouth and his lips, he will spew forth all the ugliness his heart has. And so I think of this Pharisee who, who knew very well, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I thank you that you have answered my prayers of sanctification. You've worked in my life, so I'm not like this. There are many commendable things to be said about such a man, such a prayer, that God had protected him. And these are good things. He, he recognizes, right, that they come from the hand of God, that, that he had a hand of protection on his life, and yet... Underneath this thankfulness, there was his heart of pride, which ruined it all. That was the point of Jesus' parable. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He prided himself on his commitment, his life of obedience. He was fasting twice a week, supporting the temple work with his finances, exactly according to the law, paying the tithe. And Jesus said he was lost and far from God, despite the blessings of his religious, righteous upbringing. He said the tax collector who knew his sin, who pleaded for mercy, he was the one who went away from the temple justified. And what was true in the days of Jesus is true in our days as well. The clothing might change. The location might change. But the message is still the same. right? Be careful, children and adults, of being proud of your religious, righteous God-helping upbringing. And so here's the trick, right? For those of us who have experienced or have experienced the blessing of a Christian home, be thankful for God's kindness to you. He has spared you many hurts. And children, you are being spared many hurts right now. It's appropriate to thank God for all these blessings. A religious heritage is of great value to your soul. A religious heritage helps when your mother has a stroke like she did my my mom a week and a half ago. And a religious heritage helps when your mom has breast cancer. Just because you know, you've seen your mom walk with the Lord for years and you know that through these troubles God's going to be faithful and I'm thankful for her happiness and her joy as she is by God's grace getting better. My dad says that every day she's getting better and we just thank God for that blessing to see a mom go through some difficult things with joy on her face, trusting in, and and I think one of the reasons I reflect upon this, why is my mom so happy? Why is she so contented? I think some is because she's 100% trusting and knowing of my dad's love for her. And she's got my sisters around her. one sister particularly who's a nurse, who's making sure that she gets the best of care. She's got not, got not a care in the world. She's trusting and resting in God. God has given a a faithful man as a husband has given faithful children to serve her. I thanked my, my sister who I spent time with this Thursday and uh, for spending so much time. She's there every day, sometimes a couple times a day. This is uh, about an hour and a half away for us, so it's kind of harder, but she's 10 minutes away, and she said, my pleasure. There's a godly upbringing of a daughter who loves her mom who's just serving the Lord. But I, I know that there are dangers that these blessings can can bring, and uh, I would encourage you all to stay away from the religious trappings that can so easily entangle us. My message this morning is entitled, Religious Trappings. It comes from Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. That was a long introduction, but I, I trust you'll see where I'm, I'm going with that. You can open a Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Page 940, if you don't have a Bible at home, take that home, that's our gift to you. And here we see religious people trapped in their religion. Trapped in the dangers of their blessings. See, the trappings of religious people are different than the the trappings of non-religious people who have no moral compass. I mean, it's a little bit like this, right? You, you You don't trap a mouse with a bear trap it won't work and you don't trap a a snake with a mouse trap it won't work and so these are our religious trappings that we see as paul just opens up and exposes sin starts in verse 17 but if you call yourself a jew You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of a law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he was physically uncircumcised. But keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And at verse 17, we see a turn in the book of Romans. This is the first time that Paul addresses the Jew specifically. Now, he'd mentioned the Jew earlier in chapter 1, verse 16, um, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He'd, he'd mentioned it uh, uh, other times before about how it's the Jew first and also the Greek. But but at this point, he, he focuses attention upon the Jew. Looking at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, and he's going to show how... Trapped these people are by the religion. Back in chapter 1 in verse 18, Paul showed how the non-religious person was, was lost in a sin, lost because he knows God through creation, and though he, he knows God, he refuses to honor God or give thanks to him, verse 21. And beginning in chapter 2, Paul turns the moral, to the moral person. Now, this could be Jew, it, it could be a moral Gentile person. It, it's to the one who knows enough not to be caught into the obvious sins of the pagans but one who's able to judge sins of another and thereby when he shows his judgment of the sins of another he shows that he has a moral compass within him called his conscience and he's lost because he knows right from wrong and though he knows the difference between right and wrong he does wrong anyway and now beginning chapter 2 verse 17 Paul's going after the Jews, specifically now. We have the, the Jewish person. It's not, not necessarily applicable morally, but this is the one who's a Jew. That's why he starts talking about circumcision in verse 25 and following. And uh, Paul is going after this one. And here's my first point. Religious trappings don't trust in your heritage. Now, you, you, can, tr- you can sense the pride um, in those that Paul is accusing they're taking the name Jew proudly. Yes, I am a Jew named after Judah, the the tribe of Israel from which the scepter will come forth, the 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 tribe in which David came forth. This was the faithful tribe in the south. All others abandoned, but we are the the faithful Jews. We are God's chosen people. We we God made the promises to Abraham and his offspring. And we're his offspring. We're the objects of God's blessing. We are God's favored people. See, the, the word Jew then was a very favored word. We can contrast that with today. Where the name Jew is a, is a bad name. Scorned by many. In fact, you use the word Jew today in some contexts, And it comes across as a racial slur. The Jews of Nazi Germany had to wear tags. It said Jude. But not so with Paul when he uses it here. He's appealing to the racial pride bound up in the Jews. And and you can hear that pride. You feel that pride in verse 17 and 18. All the blessings, right? If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. I mean, these are good things. It's a good thing to rely upon the law. Psalm 37 verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Right, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Rely upon him and he's gonna act. It's good to rely upon the law. It's good to boast in God. Psalm twenty verse seven. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. It's good to boast in God. It's good to know the will of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm one nineteen one oh five says. It's good to approve what's excellent. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. There's any excellence. If there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. It is good to approve the things that are excellent. It's good to be instructed from the law. Psalm 118, verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. It's a prayer to God. God, lead me in the path that you have prescribed. These things are good. It's good to be a man of God, it's good to boast in the Lord. It's good to submit yourself to the will of God, to be a student of Scripture. Now the problem comes when this becomes your trust and your boast. There are many people in the world, and I'm just calling it heritage, right? Trusting that they have the Jew, trusting that they have the law, trusting that they know all these good things about God. There are many people in this world who trust in their heritage, the goodness of their family, Right? This is our family name. This is who we are. And it's a good heritage, oftentimes. They trust in their standing in the community. They're righteous citizens. They, they have some say. They have some sway. They know the mayor. They've had the mayor over for dinner at the house. They trust in the identity of their religion. Right, This is the religion that I have. And it's such a good religion. And I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with over the years... Things start to turn spiritually, and we talk. I talk to them, and and they start identifying themselves by a particular denomination. I say, "What what what, what denomination are you?" Well, I often just kind of say this: I'm non-denomination. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. that believes the gospel of Christ. Just something like that. And um, but people often say, "Well, I'm Methodist," or "I'm a I'm a Catholic," or "I'm a Presbyterian," or "I'm a I'm a Baptist," and. And they're trusting in their heritage. When it comes to the condition of their soul, they, they seem in somehow to, to trust it with these religious authorities in this, in this organization as if they're watching over and they're going to be okay because they, they're a Methodist and they constantly go to church and they're constantly are involved in all the Methodist activities. And they take pride in these things oftentimes, even though there's little difference made in their lives. Right? But they're a Presbyterian right that's the heritage and that's what the jews were right they're a jew they're boasting in god and they're knowing his will in fact on a number of cases i've spoken with people about christ they've brought up their grandparents and this is a bizarre thing probably about five or six times i've, I've heard this they say oh yes They start talking about spiritually oh yes my grandfather was a preacher as if like that was Oh, really? Oh, great. Good for you. That's wonderful. You know, and oftentimes you say, well, how's that working out? It's really not. In fact, this past summer, we had an accident with one of our cars. and was in the shop. Um, insurance paid for a rental car. So I, I dropped the car off at the, the body repair place. And uh, then soon this guy came over in the car to take me to the rental place. So I get a rental car. And in the five-minute conversation, I things were able to change spiritually um and um taking great pride he said this my grandmother's into the religious thing she's a preacher and um you know so i asked him like well okay are you listening to her is it making any difference in your life and he's kind of like, well at some point i think i i will go follow yeah so like <laughs> that you know what that means oh well i i think I th- yeah some i think so that means no Right? It's not making a difference in his life at all. But there it is. There's his, his, his heritage. His, just because his grandmother's this preacher in some church someplace, he thinks that he's okay. And I've heard that on a couple of occasions. This, this danger of, of heritage is really there, and it is most dangerous when you've had a good heritage because you can trust in those things. And I can't believe this guy would be so quick to bring up his grandmother. It's just misplaced trust is what that is. He's trusting his heritage. And how many untold millions in America and around the world would identify themselves as Christian and have so little understanding of what that means? In uh, 2014, that was just two years ago, a survey was, was conducted, and 70% of Americans today identify themselves as Christian i 'm just saying that that's that 's where professing people are that 's they 're trusting her- they 're trusting in the heritage, I think even Thanksgiving right the pilgrims came over and some heard the story they 're trying to they 're trying to say right it 's turkey day right but you remember last week right it 's not it 's not turkey day it 's Thanksgiving right and so many people have kind of think about the pilgrims they knew they fled because of religious Freedom, and so there's no, there's some kind of Christian heritage. They, people, when they say they're Christian, that's just their default. They, they don't, but they're trusting in some sort of heritage. Now, at 70% of Americans, it's 50% Protestant of all different forms, whether it's mainline or evangelical Protestant, and 20% Catholic. Here's the interesting thing that's down from 78% two years ago. Uh, seven years ago, rather. In seven years, it's gone down 8%. And at the same time, up about 8% has been the non-affiliated, which are about 20% of our population now. Like, no, no religion at all. So we're losing a heritage, but so many people right, in, in the United States are trusting this heritage. They are they have no idea what it means. And I trust that there are probably Jews here who have no idea what it means even to rely upon the law. So much of it is cultural. But here's my warning. Don't think it can't happen to you. Children especially, you grow up a good heritage at Rock Valley Bible Church. Moms and dads love each other. We have a church family that feels like a, a family reunion every Sunday. At least that's what I'm aiming for, right? We see family, we see kids, we see joy, right here among us. And, and you may call yourself a Bible-believing Christian and be lost in your sin because you're trusting. I, I remember growing up at Rock Valley Bible Church. We believe the Bible. The pastor preaches these long sermons. Bible is our middle name. Right? We're into the Bible. I was there every Sunday. I learned so much, and God has been so good. He's been so good to me. I'm thankful for my family, thankful for religious upbringing, thankful I learned the Bible so much, so well as a youth, but you could say all those things and experience all those things and still be lost. Because the Apostle Paul would say, well and good, but don't trust the blessings of God in your life. Those things aren't going to merit anything for God in that final day where where Paul ultimately is, is going at, right? He, this whole section from Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is all going towards verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped in the whole world accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will justify in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, right? We're talking about sin and being exposed. to Your sin. You're not going to be made righteous there by your works. And God's not going to ask you about your religious heritage. If He asks you at all about Rock Valley Bible Church, we say, "Oh, and what? What did you learn there? And what did you? And did you follow up on that? Did you act on that?" Because, as we learned last week, Romans chapter two, verse thirteen, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And that's right exactly where Paul is heading in verse 19. See, because it's more than just this heritage. It's more than, than your grandmother preacher, okay? It's more than your parents believing. It is in and through you that trusting in Christ is going to make the difference. And you, you will know the blessings of God if you are around a, a Christian home. And those will spill over to you and you, you will be so blessed. But all that will be lost if you don't trust in Christ personally. That's too often people trust in what they know rather than in who they know. Here's my second religious trapping Don't trust in your heritage. Secondly, don't trust in your learning. By that, I just mean don't trust in what you know about God as if knowing about God is okay. Verse 19 through 24. Right? Let's get a running start, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, right? If you've got all these blessings of being around God and being around His Word and being around His people and if you are sure that you're a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, and you're sure of these things, right? You're the teacher having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, coming right back to how you live. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You may have this religious heritage, but your life may not show it. As is written, the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you. I want to summarize up that whole section with one word. Here it is. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a religious trapping. Because as a Jew, those in religion have all the advantages that one could ask for. I mean, the Jews particularly, right? They, they were people of God trusting the law and knowing His will. They were guides to the blind. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's what we celebrate. Jesus coming, right? The light has come. They believe that they were the light guiding those who were in the darkness. They were instructors of the foolish, teachers of the children. They had in the law, verse 20 says, they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. We have the embodiment of knowledge and truth right here. We have it. There are many people who don't even have this, right, if you don't have a Bible at home, take the one in front of you, it's our gift to you, people take them because they don't have them, kids in the neighborhood, I see, I've given several Bibles out to kids in the neighborhood, because they don't have, I say, do you have a Bible at home, they say, no, and so I give them a New Testament, or I've given them Bibles, they ask for Bibles, they don't have any, because their homes don't have any, and many homes don't have any, or if they do, they are They sit up on a shelf. Maybe yours sits up on a shelf someplace. But we have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. And these Jews had great learning, poised to be great teachers. And what did they do? They they were teaching others. But verse 21 says, they weren't teaching themselves. It's the essence of hypocrisy, really. And Jesus said to these same Jews, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you blind guides. Matthew 23. And the imagery is stunning, right? A, a blind guide, a blind man needs a guide to see the way, and if that guide is blind as well, what's going to happen? We know it's going to happen, right? They're going to, help me? Fall where? Fall into a pit, right? If a blind man guides, a blind man Both will fall into a pit. And the Jews were blind. How were they blind? They were blind to their own sin. And they were confident that they were these guides. They were confident they were the light, but they were really darkness. They they were confident that they were the instructor. I'm the teacher. And they were teaching children. They were teaching your children. Parents, beware. They were preaching against stealing. That's so what it says there in verse 21. Why? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And they were preaching against adultery, all the while committing adultery. Verse 22. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? They were preaching against idolatry, and yet involved in the same. You who abhor idols. Do you rob temples? Now what exactly is meant by rob temples? I don't know. I read commentaries. I don't know exactly what it means, but somehow it means that you're involved. You, you say idolatry is bad, but you go out and these pagan temples, somehow you're robbing them or engaged in them somehow. I, I, I don't know, but you're preaching against idolatry. You're engaged in idolatry. Preaching the glories of the law, but breaking it. At the same time, that's the epitome of, of hypocrisy, right? You, you, you call someone to some type of standard and you have them keep that standard while you yourself in the closet aren't keeping that standard. As Jesus said, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, laid heavy burdens upon their shoulders while they're not willing even to pick up a finger. And he hits the commandments here. Stealing is one of the Ten Commandments. What number of the Ten Commandments is stealing? Help me if you know. Not, not two, not two. Good guess. Eight, good. What about adultery? What's adultery? Adultery is number seven. Good. And what about uh, idolatry? Good. Good guess. One and two. Okay. If you need help in understanding those, we have a, a little song. Do not worship any other gods. Do not make any idols. Do not withhold the... Do not misuse the name of God. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and your mother. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not... Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet anything. And there's hand signals. You can ask Yvonne about that. We teach these kids in Kids Club, and they know that. They know that well. They know the commandments. That's all he's doing. He's just opening up the commandments. Stealing, adultery, idolatry. He just goes for three of them. He could have gone for more. Stealing... Think about teachers. How many pastors have been caught embezzling churches' funds? I just Google searched pastor embezzling. Came up, you know, Google does, 100,000 shots, you know. Here, here's just what the top four titles said. Former pastor accused of embezzling, won't get jail time. I was like, I won't get jail time. <laughs> Maybe I should figure that one out, right? No, I'm kidding. I'm not talking <laughs> um, but then I, went and I kind of read that, why he wasn't, because he paid it all back and stuff like that, whatever. But, but, you know, it's a thing. Singapore court finds pastor guilty of $35 million fraud. Pastor's wife charged with embezzling from church in Kingsport. Pastor stole 250000 in donations from his church. I mean, that's, that doesn't surprise you. What about adultery? How many pastors have been caught in adultery? Or run off with some secretary? Probably too many to count. Um, you can probably Google the same thing and find a lot of stories if you want to. Uh, idolatry. Pastors preach against it and yet can easily have a love for the world that speaks contrary to what they, what they preach. And I say to my shame. that The lure of the world holds plenty of attraction in my heart. Not sports or technology or comfort. I, just, I know what idols of this world are. And I hate him in my life. And too often, pastors are often known for breaking the law that they preach. It's no wonder what the world looks on and says, well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, then I I want nothing of it. And people of the world, when it comes to Christianity, right, they, they think it's a sham. They think it's a blind man leading a bunch of willingly blind people just nowhere. That is the picture that people have of Christianity. That's exactly, I think, the spirit of what Paul is saying here in verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now this quote comes from Isaiah 52 verse 5. Uh, Essentially has to do with the people of God not remaining in the land. And they're not remaining in the land anymore because of their sin. As they were unfaithful, God removed them from the land. But he didn't purge them entirely because a lot of times for the sake of his name he brought people back. For the sake of the line of Messiah he protected them though in some regards reluctantly they so, sinned so bad. But it's the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because you're living such a sinful life that you're going into exile and, and you're being routed. What is your God not helping you? Where's your God? Right? Hey, right you remember the... Um, There's just stories about people mocking God. Well, where's your God now? Where's your God now? Psalm 3, many are those who rise up against me saying, he hopes in the God. Where's his God now? The name of God is blasphemed because they were wicked in their sin. And their sin was really a flexion of their own God. Though they had all the glorious blessings of God, they pursued their own idolatrous God. Now, think when, when 70% of America self-professes to be Christian, I remember I said that and someone laughed, right? It's because actions speak way louder than words. And that's what Paul is getting at here. When 70% of our nation say they follow after God, let me ask you a question. Why is abortion still legal in our land? I mean, if 70% of the people rose up and said, no, I think, I think that's murder, uh, I think things would change. If there's 70% of our nation say they're following after God, why is the in- entertainment industry so sexualized? Listen, if 70% of people would stand up and say, I'm not going to see an R rated movie, I'm not going to go see nudity, you know what? Hollywood can't afford that. And they would change. Why is our government so overspending if 70% of our nation? Says they're Christians. Someone's going to stand up. and Says, "Hey, I don't want to rob the next generation. What do you do? You're taking from us. Let's stop that." Or why do we have um, lotteries and slot machines? Every study shows that's just prey on the poor. That's government officials preying on poor people, taking that money. A guaranteed loser. You ever seen casinos? Why are they so big? And why are they so glamorous? Why are they so glorious? Because they've taken your money that you've tried to gamble. Or you're always going to lose. And all these slot places all around, this is how it is. And if 70% of our nations following after God actually did follow after God, lotteries and slot machines would be, would be gone. Why is pornography so rampant in our society? 70% of uh, our nations as they follow after God it shouldn't be. And I just say this, okay, I'm not ranting against America here this morning, I'm just saying this, is that the the morality of our nation, tied with a 70% profession of we're a Christian nation, leads people to blaspheme God, say, oh, that's what God looks like. (laughs) And in fact, okay, this is why the Muslims, one part, reason why the Muslims in the Middle East, hate America so bad is because our our morality is so bad. Now, a lot of that's external and it's not right, but that, that comes. Oh, there's this Christian nation. That's the fruit of Christian nation? Listen, we'd rather have this Islam nation, right, where where it's righteous, where women are safer. Well, not, but I'm just saying, that's one of their arguments. There's blasphemy coming from those nations because of our overarching profession. And you know what? I've I've just applied this to teachers and um, pastors but you can equally uh, apply this to to all of us because it says in verse 24 right the name of God is among the Gentiles because of you you is who you is the Jew even though the Jew here is teaching still all of us teach all of us talk all of us say things we teach and lead our, our children for sure. But that's why I put, I put my point, right? Don't trust in your learning rather than your teaching. Unless you say, help, oh, Steve, that's just your problem. Because right? you're a pastor. No, no, no. This is all of our problem. If you trust in the Lord, if you boast in the law, if you have this religious heritage, what are you doing? Listen, right. You're a representative of Christ. And the world is watching you. It's watching you to see if you really believe the things you say you believe. And sometimes it's watching to see if you really believe what they know you should really believe because they know what the Bible says. And when they catch you not acting the way God says you should act, the way that you say you should act, they say, Ha! Hypocrite! Wrong! I knew you didn't believe that! And and they believe that it's a sham and they're looking for that excuse so they can get out of hot water. It gets them off the hook. That's the world, but your children are watching as well. There's lots of blessing growing up in a Christian home. But they're watching you. They're saying, Dad, are you stealing? Are you honest? Honest with your employer's time? Honest when the receipt rings up wrong in your favor? Are you you correcting that? Giving it back to the cashier saying, "Oh, oh, I think a mistake was made? Other possessions in your house that are other people's? Are you stealing? Uh, What about committing adultery? Now, I don't suspect anybody here is committing adultery, all right? Maybe, if if so, God will convict your hearts right now. But, listen, right, there's other ways that you can commit adultery, right? When your talk is like the banter talk of people at work. Or when your eyes wander where they shouldn't wander, or, or any... Wrong, explicit relationship with someone of the opposite sex thats just, just starting I mean adultery doesn't just start and stop it's a, there's a ramp going up to it or engaged in pornography I mean that's that's a rampant sin in our nation today it's a rampant sin in the church are you preaching against that yet committing it what about idols you say idols are wrong but are you are you committing idolatry yourself I mean, what's filling your mind? What's filling your heart? What's filling your talk? Is it filled with things and stuff and just wanting more? Are you really, when it comes down to it, worshiping, whatever, some American something, whatever, some technology or your Bible, just say, okay, well, how, how much time is, is your Bible getting or the other things? Whatever's getting your time gets your attention. That's what you're worshiping. Listen, right. And if the truth were known, based on what I said today, we all know our guilt. Okay, I'm I'm included in this as well. We know our guilt. We know that we've not lived righteously. We know that our mouth is shut. Chapter 3, verse 19. And we know that we're hypocrites. That's the point. is to expose us in our sin that we might see our guilt, that we might run to Christ. Because here it is. The antidote to hypocrisy is confession and the gospel. The, the way to solve being a hypocrite, saying one thing and not doing that, is to say, yeah, I'm not doing it. But there's hope in the gospel that in Christ I am doing it. And that's where forgiveness of sins comes. So turn over to Romans chapter 4. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now, I had planned to finish chapter 3 today, but I'm not, I'm not going to. We're just going to park here and just reflect upon how we solve our hypocrisy problem, what we have. How you solve that problem with your kids. How you solve that problem with your coworkers? How you solve that problem with your family, with your wife. And you solve it through confession, through the gospel. Here's the hope of the gospel, okay? I've tried to hit hard on sin, right? Like we are here in the, in the gospel, right? We're Romans, eager to preach the gospel, but sin's got to come hard. The bad news has to come before the good news. And the good news is coming in chapter 3, verse 21. I'm anxious to get there, but Dallas counseled me today. Don't be so anxious because we need to see, need to be lost first before we can be saved, right? So we'll we'll get there. But look at chapter 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You know, I, I opened my sermon talking about the blessing of a Christian household. And just the innumerable blessings that that is. And those are blessings. They, they bring with themselves dangers. But this is the greatest blessing that can be there. Even that's what David says. Blessed, verse 7. Blessed, verse 8. Quoting from Psalm 31. When, when he had sinned, and he said, I didn't confess my sins. My, my bones were drying up. But I confess my sins to thee. And it all like opened up. And then he's saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now we thank God for the wonderful ways that he has blessed us and our family. Right? But nothing is greater than sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's where our greatest blessing is. That's where our greatest hope is. That's where Romans is going. When we see the darkness of our sin, we're going to see that by the works of Allah law, our flesh isn't justified in God's sight, that we are hopeless in our sin and Paul's trying to drive us to our hopeless despair. We might realize that all we simply need to do is acknowledge our sin to God, confess and believe on Jesus and we can have the greatest blessing of all, the blessing of sins forgiven. So this message, particularly children, you're being grown in a, Christian homes. Rejoice in that. But rejoice greater the blessing of the gospel that you can receive simply by believing in Jesus. So let's pray. Father, I pray in your grace you would open hearts and minds. God, where sin abounds, as we're going to see in Romans 6, grace does superabound. God, there's none of us in this room who is without hope. God, we all have hope in Jesus if we would but turn to Him, confess our sin, turn to Him. So Lord, we pray that we would be a church of, of those who are, are looking to Christ and are trusting in Him with our whole hearts, that we might know the blessing of forgiveness and might leave this place happy and might uh, see happiness and joy and pleasures reign in our home, God, uh, because that's what you desire. You desire our joy and our happiness. You command our joy and our happiness. And so God, I pray that you would strengthen us for these things. Take your word, plant it deep in our souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.